From the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, it's Democracy in Danger. I'm Emily Burrell. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And today on the show, we turn a new leaf. I celebrate myself and sing myself and what I assume you shall assume. For every atom and belonging to my me soul, as good belongs to you. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. It's about exploring a vision of the future, about the hopes and dreams of people everywhere who want to flourish, to live in peace, and to rule themselves. Unscrew the locks from the doors. Unscrew the doors themselves from their jams. Every atom of my blood formed from this soil. Whoever degrades another degrades me. And whatever is done or said returns Through at me, last. the afflatus mm. surging and surging. Through me, the current I index. speak the password primeval. I give the sign of democracy. By God, I will accept nothing which all cannot have their counterpart of on the same terms. Our listeners know what democracy in danger has covered for the last three years, both in the United States and across the world. We've been looking at all the different threats to self-government, the forces of authoritarianism and the ways that wealthy special interests are encroaching on democracy. We've looked at voting restrictions and violent extremism, ethnic and racial hatred, economic inequality, and of course, the complacency that makes all of this possible. But... This chapter of our podcast, this season, is going to focus on something beyond that, something that we've been thinking a lot about lately. I like to call it affective democracy. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Yeah, so I love this Whitman and Guthrie that we've been hearing on the show so far. But let's unpack that term that you just used, Siva. As I understand it, what we're talking about is the culture of democracy, Mm -hmm. the idea that for self-government to work, we need a shared sense of belonging, Mm -hmm. of mutual support and obligation to one another, not just personal freedom, not just voting rights, not just laws and formal structures. Exactly. A shared fate, a sense that we breathe the same air, that we dance on the same dance floors. That's why we need artists, poets, musicians, architects, novelists, as well as organizers, activists, journalists, and scholars to fulfill this sense of shared belonging. This air, born here of parents born here, from parents the same, and their parents not the same. People who will stir us and get us to recognize that higher calling to aspire to true democratic fulfillment. I permit to speak at every hazard, nature, without check with original energy. I am totally on board with this idea. And so is our guest today, who conveniently is a professor of English and an expert on community writing, (laughs) advocacy, and democratic political movements. Yes, Stephen J. Parks is with us in the studio today. He is a colleague of ours here at the University of Virginia. He runs the Democratic Futures Project, which I think is the best name of any of the projects we do here at UVA. Now, that project puts together international activists, you know, with students and scholars. And these activists are often exiled from their home countries. 
Now, you'll recognize Steve's voice. He has guest hosted this show several times, and he's cooking up a regular new segment with our producers. More about that later in this episode. Steve, welcome back to Democracy in Danger. It's wonderful to have you with us. It's wonderful to be here. So, Steve, you've been working with people from all over the world. They have been risking their lives, challenging dictators, challenging thugs, challenging stasis in many ways. And and a lot of them have paid a very high price for that stand, for that speech, for that expression. And I'm curious, what have you learned from these advocates about the aesthetic dimensions of their movements? Um, I think the the big lesson I've learned is that like culture is a primary object to sort of investigate and change. Mm. Um, a lot of the folks I work with, they live in cultures where their identity is dismissed, their culture is oppressed, mm. and their community is intentionally fractured so that they cannot organize and sort of claim the rights and democratic processes they deserve. Mm-hmm. So often what these advocates do, the first thing they do is think about how to create a new cultural space, which doesn't just sort of talk about democracy, but actually enacts it. So they will often have writing groups where you get people together in safe spaces and they will begin to articulate that culture of memory right. where they remember what their community was. They remember heroes in their community. And through poetry, writing, song, speeches, you begin to rearticulate that effective sense that draws them all together. And with that effective sense then, they gain the power to have larger platforms and they connect that to strategy. Like my favorite example of this is a group in the United Kingdom called the Federation of Worker Writers and Community Publishers, or just the Fed. Um, At the moment when Thatcher was crippling the mining industry, gutting welfare for the Mm -hmm. working class, destroying public housing, dock workers, miners, painters, retail clerks got together in pubs and in basements and began to write about their experience. And then they would meet and they would share their writing. And over the course of 30 years, they had over 120 writing groups. They published 2 million books, self-published 2 million books that protected sort of key elements of the working class culture. In fact, what's interesting is there was a book published of middle school poetry. And when it was published, the uh, principal decided that it wasn't literature and he banned the book. And then there became a big protest. They took over Trafalgar Square and the teacher wrote a poem about what he thought that poetry meant by the students and the power that it had. And I think it speaks to how the Fed understands their writing. Can you, can you share a bit with us? I would love to. Uh, so this is by Chris Searle. Anyone can write a poem. I still hold that. But you children, sharply organized, you made your words strike. The words of your class march past middle-class poetic cynics, shaking their heads, declaring poetry can do nothing. It makes nothing happen. Yes, their poetry can do nothing, morosely making nothing of the world. But yours, wed to action, can take it over. Wow. As they grew, they ended up in uh, Africa, Asia, South America. It became a very global working class phenomenon. And that portability, I think, is key here. And that's one of the real powers Mm -hmm. of affective democracy or Mm -hmm. cultural expression that supports democracy, right? So uh, when you were talking about these workers in early years of Thatcher as as, like her shock therapy is really hitting, I'm 
running Billy Bragg songs through my head, right? Because Billy Bragg is portable. It gets over to me. I'm in high school. I, you know, I don't know much about Thatcher. I'm worried about Reagan. But, you know, all of a sudden I'm hearing Billy Bragg's anthems. I'm hearing the beat uh, singing Stand Down, Margaret. I'm hearing Elvis Costello. I'm hearing The Clash. And I am I'm in the groove with that movement, even if I have nothing to do with minors in England and Wales, right? I, like th- Those are people who will, will never share... Uh, problems with me. And yet a sense of solidarity is transferable, portable, and I got to say, kind of, you know, deeply attractive. And I should say, if you ever want to question the power of democratic culture, the first thing Margaret Thatcher did when she got it was cut the funding to the Fed. Not accidentally. Not accidentally. Right. We also, this is making me think of somebody, we've got to talk about Sinead O'Connor a little bit oh, here. Yes. Right? The, the recently departed Sinead O'Connor. One of the things I think about, I'm just thinking about what Siva was saying about his, his youth and anti-Thatcherism uh, reverberating across the ocean. Right. Um, for you in the 80s, for me, I think about the 90s, I think about Sinead O'Connor's song, Black Boys on Mopeds. England's not the... That was the song for me as a high school student. I think I must have been in middle school where I began to understand. I didn't know that there was a culture of anti-blackness in London. That's how I learned about it. Um, It was through the song Black Boys on Mopeds. And here's the thing, and this is why I wanted to talk about this stuff. I don't feel it or see it today. At least I don't feel it or hear it in the same ways. I hear and feel political music, political novels, political poems, like those exist, right? Uh, Pushing a point of view, pushing activism, pushing an agenda. Absolutely. I can get stirred by, you know, um, Eminem criticizing Trump, right? Uh, You know, that's out there. But uh, a sense of celebrating democracy, of celebrating the potential for democracy, an explicit embrace of the beauty of democracy is something I see very strongly in the 20th century, throughout the 20th century. And I just don't hear it today, and and I would love to be proven wrong. So that's why I want to sort of revisit both all of these artists who had such a profound effect on the 20th century and the early 21st century, and, and then both ask about and call for a rhyme and rhythm of democracy here in the 2020s. So Steve, what am I missing? I'm too American. I know it. Like, who around the world is stirring us to recognize our sense of shared fate, a sense of potential, a sense of the beauty and the glory of democracy. I think we have to sort of distance ourselves a little bit from Western models of Mm -hmm. what effective democratic culture looks like. Woody Guthrie, who we heard at the beginning, he was fortunate because he actually, despite any arrest he might face, he could travel. You can't do that in Myanmar. You can't necessarily do that in Belarus. So I think we have to look at cultural moments that aren't the song and a thousand people chanting, but it's like one person who sort of disagrees a little bit. Yeah. You know, a nursery rhyme that is spoken and everybody knows what that nursery rhyme means. Yeah. It's like a symbol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think 
when I look at Myanmar, and I, I'm sure like if we were to look at the African continent, we would find different models of what this affective looks like because it's just coming up. Right, It's right, just right. emerging. It's not going to look like it looks in America after 200 years. Right, mm-hmm. right. So that's a really good point. We really have to break out of this Woody Guthrie-infused Americanism, which I am guilty of. It's like my PhD is in American studies. I'm an American, right? And we're going to return to all of the American stuff, no doubt. But Emily, what is the story in Africa? What has been the story of post-colonial cultural expression? How is it matured now? What are you seeing? I start to think about the 40s and the 50s. Um, I think about people like Leopold Sedar Senghor, oh, who was yeah. the first president of Senegal. He was a poet. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the poems of his I was just thinking about earlier today even was a poem that he wrote in 1948. It's a direct uh, dialogue with uh, Georges Pompidou, who would go on to become the prime minister of France before he was the president. Also a poet, also a man of of letters, a classmate of, of Senghor, he writes this long poem called The Prayer for Peace, where he's directly beseeching French colleagues to end the suffering of African soldiers in wars of empire. And he's making a call for this common sense of humanity through, um, through a prayer form that's tied mm. to Catholicism, but he's invoking a very local um, Serer West African Senegalese proverbs and forms. And so anyway, all of this is to say that poem makes me think of uh, the ways that certain nationalists and freedom fighters in West Africa in the 40s and the 50s invoked radical ideas about black nationalism, about democratic futures and linking values that might be seen as radical and as turns towards a new future to deeply rooted notions of common shared ethics and belonging and culture. So, Emily, You've noted, we've talked about uh, women's rights activists in, in West Africa. Uh, how was culture playing a role in there? And, and you know, given the long history of these sort of separate spheres, right, what, mm-hmm. what particular role were women playing in that story? Yeah. So in 1962 in Mali, uh, there's a new constitution. Mali becomes mm-hmm. independent uh, 1960 from France. And one of the important elements of this constitution is a marriage and guardianship code, which legislates consent mm. uh, to marriage in new ways and also prohibits forced marriage and um, exorbitant bride wealth fees. And wow. You would think that this- It's pretty radical. It's pretty radical, actually. In a, in a very conservative Muslim country. It's a conservative country, but it's it's also a moment where we see a lot of new kinds of political freedoms being expressed. Mm. And so this uh, song, uh, Bombo, um, is performed by a woman, a young woman. Actually, she was 12 at the time. Her name was Fatumata uh, Kuyate. She performs this song at a gala event, which was organized for Mali's first president. You know, he's receiving all of these heads of state in 1962. And the song, Bombo, it's about a girl named Bombo, and it includes this really important refrain that goes, Muso kera horonye, which literally means women are not now free. According to an oral history that a scholar uh, conducted with Fatumatu Kuyate herself, as soon as she said, Muso kera horonye, women are now free, the room totally erupted in cheers. The song was a smash hit on the radio in Mali. 
And apparently, shortly after it was released, there was a case of a woman from a prominent family in Bamako who dared to say no at her own civil wedding ceremony. Uh, No, she did not want to marry the man who she'd been promised to. And she cited the influential power of the song Bombo um, as an inspiration. So I see this as an example of uh, a cultural form that is resonant uh, locally, that's directly tied to new constitutional reforms and democratic futures, gaining a lot of grassroots power um, in promoting this vision and and message um, that's actually about the power of legislative reform, but it's rooted in women's power. So, Steve, look, I, you know, I, 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 I'm so thrilled that you're bringing up this notion of non-Western models and, and it feeds right into Emily's expertise and 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 it's really waking us up and, and broadening our minds. So what is your sense? Do you have like a grand lesson for us on breaking out of our American mindset and the importance of non-Western struggles here? So last semester, for instance, we brought Jem Garcia from the Philippines, mm. who's been interviewing rural and uh farming villages in the Philippines, like Mm -hmm. ask them what they think about democracy because the default is they voted for Marcos. And she's trying to find those alternative ways of talking, singing, sharing experiences so she can reanimate that alternative sense of democracy. And I think if we listen to the rural fishing villages in the Philippines, we can learn something about our democracy in America. This whole experience made me very humble about what we need to do to learn about democracy. And I think that that's the frame we have to develop moving forward, culturally, politically, economically. Mm-hmm. We're all we're all in debt to West Africa, right? Here in the United States, we we often think about American music and we think about Western cultural hegemony, but the fact is, the rhymes and rhythms of American music are fundamentally West African. So, uh, people who were taken from their homes and their families in what is now Mali, what is now Nigeria, what is now Ghana, were dropped down in this country, were supposed to have been severed from their traditions, but that never really works completely. And what we see in the United States over the first two centuries of forced labor and the brutality is the survival and thrival of cultural forms and expressions that we then recognize today as some of the important elements of Appalachian music, some of the important elements that would gather people really pushing through a shared rhythm. And while there's no explicit, articulated Jeffersonian model of democracy, what flows out of that is, again, that crucial sense that we share something. We share uh, a fundamental way of being in the world. And for a moment, we share that rhythm. This is what I really would love people to take away from this conversation, that when we look at the forces around the world that are opposing democracy, undermining democracy, ridiculing democracy, and crushing democracy, they're fundamentally affective. They're appealing to fear, to emotion in an explicit way. And too often, people in our position, people who support democracy, people who celebrate democracy, 
we fall back on what we think of as our cognitive strengths. We fall back on arguments and evidence, which of course we need, right? Not to belittle any of that. That's the, that's the currency of our, of our trade. But, uh, but what I see when I look at the anti-democratic elements is that they have rhymes and rhythms. They have marches. It might be the crappy music of Ted Nugent or Kid Rock, but they have anthems and music pushing them, rallying them. Sometimes they're actually lifting from artists who don't share their things. But but where is the rhyme and rhythm of democracy in the 2020s? That's what I think is missing from our conversation. And 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 look, the the 19th and 20th centuries in the United States, we had a very explicit tradition of pro-democracy cultural expression. And, you know, you can trace it back to Walt Whitman and his poetry uh, right up through the Carter family and Woody Guthrie and and Nina Simone and and Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. You know, that's what I'm actually itching for. Steve, I think I have a set of responses. One Mm -hmm. is I think authoritarian culture isn't just creating an atmosphere of mm. fear. They're actually creating fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and policies, exploiting it. Yes, right? yes. Um, it's true. Fascists have marches and songs they sing to, but they also often have weapons that enable them to march and sing without threat. But I think there's percolating up in different parts of the world, in the Philippines, in Myanmar, in um, Bolivia, in Chile, in the United States, alternative visions of democracy. And I think it's incumbent upon us to sort of try to pay attention to the work that's occurring on the grassroots level, mm-hmm. we'll be energized and excited about the future of democracy. We open this episode with a recording of some of Walt Whitman's poetry from Song of Myself. I'd like to add some more Whitman. Uh, this is from the poem called Chance Democratic, which was first published in the 1860 edition of Leaves of Grass. At a moment when the country is without a doubt falling apart, literally falling apart, he writes... Welcome are all Earth's lands, each for its kind. Welcome are lands of pine and oak. Welcome are lands of the lemon and fig. Welcome are lands of gold. Welcome are lands of wheat and maize. Welcome those of the grape. Welcome are lands of sugar and rice. Welcome the cotton lands. Welcome those of the white potato and the sweet potato. So he's using vegetables and trees, plants, and resources like gold as representations of the earth around the world and the people coming from those places. And he's declaring them welcome, again, at the darkest moment of American democracy. And it's one of the visions of what American democracy is still striving to be. And that's why... These sorts of words, these sorts of expressions have such value and why we should look back and recapture and why we should look forward and encourage and celebrate the visions of democracy that people are expressing even today. So, Steve, you seem to also be proposing that we need to be asking new types of questions, right? We need to be looking differently, but we need to be asking new types of questions To that end, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on with our production team here at Democracy in Danger? Yeah. um, One of the things I liked and admired about Democracy in Danger is that a particular political moment 
it created a space to understand what was going on. And it sort of brought together a variety of constituencies to have that conversation. Uh, one of the things that we are going to be doing is creating a series of short segments under the banner of the power of many, where we talk to advocates from the African continent, from Latin America, from uh, pan-Asian areas, and ask them, what is the work you were doing that can help us understand the work we need to do? What I admire about the advocates that I work with is they create community decision-making processes that result, say, in a mural. But that mural isn't just a symbol of democracy, it's a process of democracy. I think uh, of moments when like, artists write songs speaking to the community memory and have concerts, but then interrupt the concert and give the community people a chance to speak to that audience about how this song is part of a cultural agenda, it's part of a political agenda. Moments that create the process for people to experience democracy and then have an artifact that stands for that democratic process. And I think by having that conversation will expand how people understand the future of democracy and hopefully create a community, an affective community who shares uh, that belief in the future. Well, Steve Parks, thanks so much for joining us again on Democracy in Danger. And we look forward to hearing your voice and your wisdom and your insight many more times this season and in the future. Thank you. Stephen J. Parks is a professor of English at the University of Virginia. He directs the Democratic Futures Project for our parent organization, the Karsh Institute of Democracy. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. To find all of our sister shows, please visit democracygroup.org. Listener up there, what have you to confide to me? Look in my face while I snuff the sidle of evening. Talk honestly. No one else hears you, and I stay only a minute longer. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. I concentrate toward them that are nigh. I wait on the door slab. Who has done his day's work? Who will soonest be through with his supper? Who wishes to walk with me? Will you speak before I am gone? Will you prove already too late? That's all for this episode of Democracy in Danger. Next time, we'll bring you a show we're taping live at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, all about the American dream. Stay in touch in the meantime. Shoot us a tweet at DND Podcast. That's D I N D Podcast. And yeah, we still call it a tweet. Tell us your favorite artist activist or tell us your hopes for a democratic future. And there's a lot more to read on our brand spanking new webpage. Head over to dindanger.org for show notes, links to what we're reading, and a little bit more about all of our amazing guests. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol, Nicholas Scott, and Stephen Betts. Ariana Aronson edits our social media. Adine Yeager engineers the show. Our interns are Charlie Burns, Lena Frehat, Katie Pyle, Makhdoum Morad Shah, and Caroline Yu. We have help from Ellie Salvatierra. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Emily Burrell. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. Until next time, from Austin, Texas, hook'em horns. Mm-hmm.